All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for giving us the canon, the completed canon of Scripture, so we can learn from it, grow from it, grow in the grace and knowledge, for we know that that is your will for us. It's why you command us to do these very things. Thank you for giving us the provision to gather together as family in the unity of the faith. May we find strength and encouragement in doing so. Most of all, we thank you for sending your Son to die in our stead so that we might spend eternity with you. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, uh, the Gospel of Salvation and Sanctification, Part 26. Fantastic transition uh, we are in right now. Uh, we spent the first 20 or so lessons on the Gospel and salvation, but then uh, he's turning our attention now to sanctification, and there's a couple of key things that we, he wants us to realize as we make that transition in our own souls. Right up front, remember, he said, do not let go of all that momentum. He's even giving these lessons a, a part title, part upon part upon part, just so visually even, you don't separate the gospel, salvation, and sanctification. And I'm even speaking about what we would call progressive or experiential sanctification, which means after salvation, do not separate these concepts in your souls. Let's start this way. True love overflows. We've been talking an awful lot about love and the simple fact that uh, anything that we are going to be motivated to do if it's godly, uh, like we just saw in uh, before class, Second uh, Timothy three, they hold other people hold to a form of godliness, but it's void of love. It's void of godly love. Anything we're going to do um, is going to be in love, and that's um, really the great command of all. And when we love, true love does overflow. It's that Greek word parasuo that we grabbed from Second Corinthians nine eight, among other places. But the concept is that true love overflows. It has a certain abundance to it. It fills up our cup from God, and then our cup overflows into the cup of others. In summary, we love. Everything in the Bible is meant to guide us to this end, and God the Holy Spirit's ministry is meant to accompany, empower us to that end also. That we love. We don't have to have every nuance in the Bible down pat. We don't have to know every single command to know what's right and wrong in light of love. And that's the bar, if you would, the truest standard of growing in the grace and knowledge of God is love. So we love everything in the Bible is meant to guide us to that end. Tuesday's lesson, uh, like tonight's even, would, would have been titled, Satan Hates Families, had it not been a part of our current series. Satan hates families. So the kickoff point was this. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty, as a shepherd, I'm pretty fed up, to be totally honest. Uh, um, not that it matters, not that Satan's going to give one care about that. If anything, he'll feed off that. But, you know, I'm pretty fed up with the attacks on my family. You're my family. Um, 
And I'm fed up with it. I'm sick and tired of it. Uh, but Church family, God ordained local assemblies in the spiritual gifts that make them function as a grace service to the saints. Commitment to family is a critical facet of spiritual growth. Satan attacks all families, not just household, but also church. So um, do not be surprised at the things you see. Uh, do not be surprised when you've seen what I see. You look at the big picture and you see slowly over the years people just sort of drop off. Then another person sort of drops off. And then another person just sort of drops. It's almost like attrition as you would look at it from uh, a training perspective in the military, you know. Uh, you get to the end, and I've said this before, I'll say it again, I think that this particular congregation, there's no glory in it because it's all by the grace of God, but this particular congregation to me is like a bunch of uh, special forces people. And um, if you know anything about special forces, a lot of people go in, but not so many come out. Not so many get to wear that special forces badge and not a, a lot of people aren't up to the task and uh the 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 training instructors are kind of like demons in a sense don't you want to ring the bell you're just weak you want to ring the bell you know and they're like tripping in your ear when you're at your weakest you know and they're like throwing buckets of ice cold seawater in your face and they're telling you about how that or they'll be eating a nice juicy hamburger from like five guys right in front of you while you're depending on seaweed you know, for your diet, these kinds of ridiculous things. And that's what it feels like many times, uh, at least in this particular local assembly. In any case, I think sometimes we take things with a grain of salt when we shouldn't. And this, my friends, is precisely one of those moments for some of you. So I'm begging you, please do not take this message or these messages about families lightly in any way, shape, or form. They are not to be taken lightly at all. Why? Because Satan hates families. Some of you really need to let that sink in. Don't just let it roll off of your tongue as some de facto ubiquitous sentiment against Satan. You know, it's like, ah, Satan hates anything from God. Oh, we already know this. No. Think about the fact that he actively hates your family. Any family, any structure that God has ordained, whether it's a household or a church or what have you, a ministry, a, a missionary field, whatever that institution happens to be that he ordained, Satan hates. So there's a certain specificity that we should apply to the principle on the board and not just say, ah, well, Satan hates everything from God and you just like write it off. No, he actively hates your families. His fingerprints are everywhere. For example, given the simple fact that sex is designed for marriage only, it seems obvious why sexual sins are arguably among the most prevalent in this world. I mentioned pornography on Tuesday. Why? Well, first of all, because the Spirit led me to do so. But also, in terms of effective measure of attacks on families, I believe it's one of the most obvious of all. I mean, so much damage is done before even people get married. You got two people going into marriage that have problems sex with sexual sins, including with pornography. 
and they need to do a stop and hold for a second and say, let's get ourselves straightened out first. Let's make sure we're ready for the real thing here. I did some more research on the subject for your consideration, just in case you think I'm being inordinately paranoid or something. Uh, Jill Manning, I don't know her, but she's a sociologist. This is a quote from her. Research reveals many systemic effects of Internet pornography that are undermining an already vulnerable culture of marriage and family. Even more disturbing is the fact that the very first Internet generations have not reached full maturity. So, the upper limits of this impact have yet to be realized. In other words, you know, it's the, the, the curve is still going up. Here are some statistics, and I know you guys love these things. And I just found this from CovenantEyes.com. Here are some statistics, and some of these are going to shock you. But again, don't go, oh, well, we already know it's bad. You know, whatever is bad. It's just, and it's just like you just take a 10-minute hiatus when we're going over the statistics. The only reason the Spirit has me doing this from a pulpit is so that you realize what's going on in our families. One in five mobile searches are for porn. Think about that. One in five mobile searches. And I mean, you could watch somebody before class here. Click, 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 do five searches right in front of you. One in five. I'm not saying that that person's in here doing that. So it was like, well, it wasn't me. I did ten before everybody in the back of it. I was just showing them stuff. I swear, my new shoes. Right? It came up. I don't know how it came up. But one in five mobile searches are for porn. Now consider kids with cell phones and tablets. Seems like every kid has one now, and some of them have it before the age of 10, which I don't understand, but whatever. That's a parental thing. But the parents should know these statistics, that one in five clicks, searches for, and mobile devices are for porn. So I was thinking about kids. I mean, a lot of kids now with cell phones and tablets. 24% of mobile users admit to having porn on the device. That means they've downloaded it onto their device. That's one in four, basically. The Internet porn business is about $3 billion. 64% of Christian men, 15% of Christian, Christian women admit on both fronts. You know, some aren't going to admit it. Seems like the men are admitting a little bit more than the women, but that's another story. 64% of Christian men, 15% of Christian women admit someone watching porn at least once per month. That's probably at least 7 out of 10 men and at least a couple out of 10 women, Christian women, are watching porn at least once a month. Regarding children and teens, this is incredible. Nine out of ten boys, six out of ten girls are exposed to porn before 18 years old. First exposure for boys is 12 years old. 15% of boys, 9% of girls have seen child porn. 32% of boys, 18% of girls have seen bestiality online. That's sex with animals. These are young children. These are people under the age of 18. 
One-third of boys have seen bestiality. Are you kidding me? Among young adults today, porn use is not the exception. It is the norm. We were just talking about that before class. There's also been a fair amount of research done at college campuses. One researcher comments, this is Naomi Wolf, she's a researcher, the young women who talk to me on campuses about the effect of pornography on their intimate lives speak of feeling that they can never measure up, that they can never ask for what they want. And if they do not offer what porn offers, they cannot expect to hold a guy. The young men talk about what it is like to grow up learning about sex from porn and how it is not helpful to them in trying to figure out how to be with a real woman. For the first time in human history, the image's power and allure have supplanted that of real naked women. Today, real naked women are just bad porn. Isn't that horrible? Real naked women are just bad porn. So when a a young boy who's grown up in this kind of a thing gets married and he sees his wife, what does he say? Oh, you're just bad porn. Well, where does that leave the intimacy in the marriage if the woman he's married to is just bad porn? Kind of destroys things right out of the gate, doesn't it? Kind of puts a little problem before the marriage even started. As pornography continues to infect adults, here are some more facts to consider. 67% of college men, 49% of college women believe porn is an acceptable expression of sexuality. 68% of young men, 18% of young women watch porn at least once per week. 68% of divorces involve one party meeting another over the internet. 68%. Think about that. That's 7 out of 10 divorces involve one of them meeting someone over the Internet. 56% of divorces involve at least one party with an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. So you tell me if this isn't a problem when it comes to families. Think about that. The young kids are being destroyed. They don't even know what sexual intimacy is by the time they become. I've, I've actually heard young men say to me, I don't even care about sex that much. Why would, why would they? If they just watch porn. 68% of divorces involved the internet, meeting others on the internet. 56% of divorces involve at least one party with an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. The point that all of these stats help amplify is simple. That Satan has used sex, specifically pornography, at inconceivable ages and with increasing pervasiveness to distort healthy relationships. It's not healthy to find intimacy on a computer screen. It's not healthy. There's nothing healthy about it. It's not healthy to find sexual pleasure from some strange actress or actor. It's not healthy. And there's, no, there's, no, <laughs> there's nothing acceptable about that, at least not as far as God designed us to be. 
And if Satan can manage to destroy the healthiness between husband and wife, for example, and possibly get them to divorce even, then he has a better chance at infecting the children in their time of weakness, anger, and confusion. I call it the domino effect. Satan uses the domino effect to destroy marriages and then attack the innocent children as their whole worlds are spun wildly out of control, riddled with self-esteem issues, anger, mommy, daddy issues, etc., etc., etc. Blow up a family and you're lucky you don't get that times ten. And Satan knows it. Now he's got two people that are in disarray. Who's looking after the children? Satan says, I'll do it. I'll send my demons to do it. And I'll start them young. I'll be all over it. And that's what made me think about that passage before class, 2 Timothy 3. He goes after the weak ones. He says, if I can blow up a family, then I've got a whole little litter, so to speak. I've got a bunch of little ones I can go after. Because they're weak and defenseless. He is awful. And some of you have partook in one or more of these situations. So don't just point fingers and go, yeah, he's such a... No, you need to look in the mirror and say, how, this, how has this happened to me? Am I involved in any of this? So again, here we are faced with sexual sins. Only the barriers, think about it, the barriers that used to exist, namely, and I hate to be so, um, how would you say, flippant, I guess, but namely, you know, it, it used to be that it, take, it took two to tangle, right? I mean, there were certain practical barriers to sexual sins, in a sense. It used to be, you know, the... It was two to tangle. But these barriers have been dropped due to easy access to pornography. Now it only takes one to tangle, in a matter of speaking. Why walk through all of these painful stats? Why? Because Satan hates families. What do you think those are for? You think I enjoy that? I don't want to. That's, that hurts my soul to absorb those things and then figure out and I had to sift through, what, three times that amount of data to give you the stuff that he wanted me to give you? Which means three times that amount went through this soul before tonight's lesson? It's not exactly a day of, you know, frolicking in the sun, to be honest. But we're here to fight the good fight. Satan hates families, and some of you really need to let that sink in, folks. Whether you're on, it doesn't matter which end you're on. If you're a perpetrator or a victim, what you need to understand is that Satan hates families. Don't just let it roll off your tongue as some de facto ubiquitous sentiment against Satan. He actively hates your families, household, church, etc. As we noted on Tuesday, Porn is just one of many things that Satan uses to destroy families. One of many. It's just an easy target because most honest people will agree with its pervasiveness. 
and it has a lot of stats available to support such things. This is not anywhere near a complete list, but we looked at this on Tuesday. Relative to him hating your household family, media promotes anti-authority orientation. Schools normalize premarital and even homosexual sex. Pornography, we just did a little side on that. Even, so, even in so-called suitable TV movies, destroys sexual intimacy between spouses. Technology creates islands within a household. Distance between spouses promotes infidelities. Family traditions, for example, eating dinner at a table together, replaced by fast food, undisciplined structure, etc., etc. So the Spirit just said, when it comes to your families, beginning with the heads of the households, husbands, fathers, you must fight the good fight. As the leader goes, so often goes the family. That's the value and the power of leadership. If you're the husband and you don't have any kids, then it's your wife. If you're a husband and a father, then it's your wife and your kids. If you're a mother, then it's your kids. There's a whole structure for a reason. And Satan knows the power of unity. So we have to fight the good fight, starting with the heads of households. Nothing more grotesque, I shouldn't say more, but few things are more grotesque than a wimpy head of a household. It's just so gross. It's like a big flag out front. You might as well hang a flag out front. Hey, come attack my family, because I'm a wimp. Might as well shoot flares off on your roof. But you might be too busy in front of a computer screen. Who knows? Satan hates your church family. The world promotes anti-authority orientation on both fronts, of course. Ruin, uh, ruin authority orientation, everything falls apart. Church leadership utterly failing, leaving ministry to Satan's agents. For example, people that are peddling coexist signs, uh, you know, the New Age church, the whatever. Women pastors and evangelists, no such thing, but they ex quote-unquote exist. Feminism out the kazoo. Homosexual marriage, spiritualism, etc., etc. These things are infiltrating the church, and church leadership, because it's perverted, is embracing it. Churches have become places of big business, selling the word, massive love offerings. And a love offering, I explained that on Tuesday, is basically uh, an offering that goes directly to the person behind the pulpit, uh, which a lot of people don't realize. Competitive atmospheres, etc., etc. Rogue Christianity has plundered local assemblies, forsaking assembly, uh, lack of financial support, etc., etc., and Satan loves this thing. He's like, why go to church when you can watch at home? Listen, live messages, the live streaming, the only reason I put that up there is for people that actually care or cannot literally be here for real reasons, not, I don't want to go, not, it's easier for me to stay home so I won't go. That stuff is a double-edged sword. Every time I, remember, we've talked about this, so I've never really pushed it. It's a free service, so I put it out there. God said do it, so we do it. But it's a double-edged sword because the lazy people, the self-absorbed people, will stay home. This I just watch it online. Well, what about everybody else? Are we family or not? Maybe I need you. 
Maybe the person over here needs you. I, I don't think like that. I know. But that's rogue Christianity, and it has plundered local assemblies. And there's a whole group, a whole swell, groundswell of people who are saying, ah, you don't have to go to church. Oh, I guess God was smoking crack the day he said, let's have some local assemblies with some spiritual gifts. I guess he was on crack that day. And I guess you know better. You and your little compatriots. Why don't you get together in your little chat room and pretend you know better than God? Good luck with that. In the meantime, I'll fight the good fight. And I'll say the things that need to be said, thank you very much, like I just said, without apologizing. Bill's going, amen! Lois is like, yeah, yeah! Listen, when it comes to your church family, beginning with me, the head of this local assembly family, we must fight the good fight of faith. Satan knows what Jesus knows. Matthew 12, 25, And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Paul spent ample time encouraging unity as well. 1 Corinthians 1, 10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there, are, there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. That's unity. Again, one last reminder. Satan hates families. Some of you really need to let that sink in. Remember, he's actively hating you. Now, rather than just walking away from a lesson, or lessons plural such as these, possibly feeling beat up or hopeless, May I remind you, while Satan hates families, God loves families. And there's real healing, folks. Look, it's not always just about getting up here, spitting a little venom, and then walking away. He's saying, if you're, on, if you're a perpetrator or a victim, see it, all is truth, and let him heal you. <laughs> But if you run away and say, la, 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 I don't like this one. I don't like this lesson at all. I don't like this. I like my porn. I like my adultery. I like my whatever. I'm not listening. I'll just wait until the next lesson that comes along. It doesn't affect me personally or whatever. But for now, I'm going to stick my fingers in my ears. God says, listen, I want you to realize the magnitude of these things so that I can heal you. So Satan loves or hates family. God loves families. You are never alone. God is able. God heals all wounds. God heals sinners and families from the inside out. So pray. For example, Isaiah 41.10, Jeremiah 17.14, 33.6, 1 Peter 2.24, Psalm 103, 2 to 4, James 5, 14 to 16, and I'm going to close with Psalm 147, 3. I could have just kept going. So as dire as the circumstances may seem, there's always hope. God heals. So it doesn't matter 
what the problem is. God's just pointing things out so you can get beyond them, so you can call a spade a spade, because it's impossible for him to do any good work in you if you live a life of denial. Go to Isaiah 41.10. Isaiah 41.10. So if you're feeling beat up and hopeless, here we go. Isaiah 41.10. Again, you are never alone. God loves families. He ordained them. You are never alone. God is able. God heals all wounds. God heals sinners and families from the inside out. So pray. Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's a promise of God right there. How about Jeremiah 17, 14? Go there. Jeremiah 17, 14. There's a time... You know, there's a time, like Solomon would say, there's a time to get beat up. He doesn't say that, but you get the point. There's a time to get beat up, and then there's a time to get healed. There's a time to look in the mirror and go, oh, my God, right? And there's a time to step back and see what he wants to do with you. Jeremiah 17, 14. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. So you have to pray. Whatever's going on in that ridiculous soul of yours, whatever kind of concoctions or justification you've made in your life to live those lies, to live against the commands of God, you've got to come up front and ask Him, pray to Him, heal me, O Lord, and you will be healed. It's the only way, in other words. You're not going to, quote-unquote, fight your way through it. Listen, if you're, an, if you're a Christian man or woman, and you are literally all out addicted to porn, you need to go to God in prayer and say, heal me from this problem. You're not going to fight through it. I'll just put some duct tape on my mouse. I'll just, I'll just do this other hobby now. I'll just somehow figure out a way to fix it myself. I'll overcome it. Hmm. No. You need to get down on your knees, or however you pray, and pray to him and say, heal me. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are my praise. How about Jeremiah 33, 6? Go there. Jeremiah 33, 6. You want to be healed, folks? Go to Him in prayer, in all honesty. But the only way He can work with you is if you confess your sins. You know, this is all things we've talked about for years now. Confess just means you see the same things the way he does. Yeah, this is ridiculous. This is totally wrong. Obviously, I can't do it on my own, Lord. Heal me. Whatever it takes. But don't say, heal me, Lord, and then disappear from church for six months. Don't say, heal me from this situation and go, la, 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 when the bald guy is trying to teach you. If you want to be healed, he'll heal you. But listen, you've got to receive whatever he's willing to give you. 
because that's what's going to heal you. But if you refuse to show up, whether even you're here physically or not, if you refuse to show up, then you got nothing. You're like the double-minded person, the double-souled person, the double-suke, right, person that James talked about. And you, you ought to expect nothing. Jeremiah 33, 6, Behold, I will bring it to... Oh, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them, and I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. How about 1 Peter 2.24? 1 Peter 2.24. So you see, not all is lost, folks. Matter of fact, it's all good. Remember how we've learned? Remember when we started? See it all as truth. What's the value? The good, the bad, the ugly, that's your starting point. Once you have the starting point, then there can, you, there can be true healing. But if you're going to play pretend and pretend this stuff doesn't, oh, I'm not addicted to anything. I don't have a problem with smoking, drinking, pornography. Uh, I don't have a problem with anything. You just have a problem. You're addicted to lying, too. First <laughs> Peter 2.24, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. There's nothing that you can do that's going to overwhelm the grace of God, that's going to overpower the Word of God. It's going to somehow alienate, even though that's what religion will tell you, alienate you from the grace of God or from God the Holy Spirit himself. Why? Because God loves families. Listen, if it's affecting one of his families, it's affecting him. Right? Didn't Jesus say something like that? The way in which you did it to the least of them, you did it to who? To me. So God takes it very personal. You want to mess with my families? You're going to have a problem. If you're the perpetrator and you come to him in humility, he'll heal you. There may be consequences, who knows? For ask anybody that's been stuck in any kind of long-lasting sin against family. It doesn't turn out very well. It doesn't turn out very well when you roll the dice against the structure, the very structure of the families that God has ordained. It never turns out very well for the perpetrators. But He can heal you Because he loves families. You are never alone. God is able. God heals all wounds. God heals sinners and families from the inside out. Pray on these things. Go to Psalm 103.2. Psalm 103.2. So the Spirit's really just trying to encourage you. He's saying, yeah. Not like he doesn't know what goes on in that head of yours. Not that he doesn't know every little secret in that head of yours. He's not fooled. He doesn't play games. One of my favorite that people do is say, well, I had such a crappy childhood that he's got to give me some space in this thing, right? No. He doesn't, he doesn't all of a sudden say, well, the commands don't apply to you because you had a crappy childhood and your parents sucked. Excuse my French. He doesn't make these provisions, these special provisions just for you. The commands are the commands. Just because you had a crappy childhood doesn't mean you can spend your life blowing up everybody else's families. 
You understand? What's wrong is wrong. And what he wants you to do is be an adult and say, that's wrong. And from that point, he can begin to heal you. Until you take that first step, you're never going to be healed. You're just playing a game. Psalm 103, 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who heals all your diseases. Some of your biggest diseases is selfitis. You mean it's not all about me? No, it's not all about me. You mean there are other people I I can affect whose lives I can help destroy? Yeah. Imagine that. On the flip side, there are other people's lives who I might actually encourage? Yeah, imagine that. So maybe you should turn the computer screen off and go do some of that. Maybe, just maybe, his promises are real. Maybe, just maybe, you'll grow. He will heal all your diseases, but folks, you've got to show up with what? What's the key to spiritual life? You've got to show up with humility. Verse 4, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Go to James 5.14. James 5.14. Now we get more communal. Communal. Meaning we're a community. Satan hates this Church, he doesn't want me praying for you. He doesn't want me praying. He doesn't want you praying for me. He doesn't want us to have prayer vigils after service. (laughs) That's the last thing he wants. Because that would build unity. James 5.14 Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be what? Healed. Healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Go to Psalm 147.3. Psalm 147.3. This is our last, and again, I mean, we could just keep going on and on. The Spirit's just encouraging you, saying, listen, if you're failing, if you're contributing, if you're whatever, know that He's able to heal you. Psalm 147.3, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Are you brokenhearted? Anybody here brokenhearted? You don't have to raise your hand. Anybody brokenhearted? Well, guess what? Go to him, he'll heal you. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. But he's not going to do it if you don't go to the doctor's office. It's kind of hard to get stitches stitches to heal, uh, to bind up a wound if you don't go to the doctor's office, right? Kind of hard to get healed if you don't go to the physician. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Again, that was the sort of counterbalance. Satan hates families, but God loves families. And it doesn't matter if you're the perpetrator or the victim. 
All you need to know is that you go to him and he will heal you. It may not be an overnight process. It could be quick, who knows? It could be just a readjustment of perspective. Who knows? It could take a little while. That's between you and him. But he will heal you and he's not a liar. So if he says he's going to heal you, then he'll heal you. But you've got to go to him. Because God loves families. You are never alone. God is able. God heals all wounds. God heals sinners and families from the inside out. So pray. There's so much scripture on healing in the Bible that I could spend, honestly, over a month or more teaching on it. But for now, the Spirit just wanted me to give you some healing encouragement after some heavy-handed realities regarding the myriad ways that many of us have failed families, our families, other people's families, families. Now, we take all of this with the assumption that the Spirit gives it to us for a fundamental reason. Again, and this is borrowed from previous lessons. Why does He give us all this? Everything the Spirit's going to motivate you to think, say, or do is going to be consistent with love. When you read in Psalms, God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. What do you hear? Is that not love? Is that not love? You're the same person who potentially is the one who has, for years, proactively destroyed more than one family. Families, plural. With your antics or whatever you do. And there he is saying, you have a problem. I see right through it all. I know what's going on here. Are you ready? Because I will heal the brokenhearted. And I'll bind up that person's wounds. I see love. So everything the Spirit's going to motivate you to think, say, or do is going to be consistent with love. If He says to you at a lesson like tonight, no matter how hard it's hitting you, no matter how uncomfortable you are, no matter how much you feel like squirming under the table, press on. That's love. That was the Holy Spirit who was holding you up under your armpits just then. Saying, no, 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 don't you slouch down. You sit straight up and you take this one head on. You need to hear this. It's about time. You're 40, 50, 60, 70 years old. Let's go. It's time. 20 years old. 25, 35. You pick the number, whatever you are. Let's go. I love you. Let's go. Let's do this thing. Let's stop playing games. So everything the Spirit's going to motivate you to think, say, or do is going to be consistent with love. After all, the Spirit is God. And God has said that love is the greatest of all commands. Just as a side note, remember, as I've taught you in the past, we do have commands to love, right? Love God. Love each other. What are commands, though? Just as a friendly reminder, commands ought to be considered as the expressed will of God. You want to know what God wants for you? Read His commands. 
It's not because he's trying to oppress you. Stop being like a teenager. He loves you. He created you. He knows what's best for you. He knows what's best for those that you run into. So he gives you commands because that's his will for you. So when you obey his commands, he's pleased. He's pleased when you love another individual. He's pleased when you kick the habit. Do you understand? He's pleased. Commands ought to be considered as the expressed will of God. In obedience, we will follow his commands, revealing his love in us. But his commands aren't ever meant to spawn religion, which I think people still do. I think most people that are young in the faith always go back, they revert back to religion. They say, I hear a command, and I just hear a to-do. It's like God saying, do this thing, do this thing, and part of me doesn't even want to do it. So if I'm going to do it, I have to turn it into some kind of like religion, put myself on some kind of a little treadmill. And he doesn't want that. He wants you to understand that the reason he's even giving any command is because he loves you and he knows what's best for you. His commands aren't ever meant to spawn religion. His spirit convicts us to obey, for example, to love. I hope the point on the board strings a lot of this together for all of you. Here's the passage that reveals to us our Lord's thoughts on commands. Go to Matthew 22:35. Matthew 22:35. <clears throat> Again, commands ought to be considered as the expressed will of God. In obedience, we will follow His commands, revealing His love in us, but His commands aren't ever meant to spawn religion. His Spirit convicts us to obey. <clears throat> Matthew twenty-two thirty-five. 35, One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. To love. Love God. Love others. In other words, abide in my love, as Christ might say, or John the Apostle might allude to. Again, the point on the board, commands ought to be considered as the expressed will of God. And the greatest command is what? As we just saw, to love. So to that end is every unction, every conviction that the Spirit will ever give you will always be in the direction of love. As Jesus has said, every other law is wrapped up into those, into that one to love. So he's never going to do something that's inconsistent. Think of uh, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit. The first one mentioned is love. 1 Corinthians 13. The greatest of these is what? Love. So it's never not going to be in the direction to love. It's never going to depart from the sphere of love. So any command that you're convicted of in time, even if it stings, is always in love. 
Keep this in mind as we continue to look at commands in Scripture, such as, go to Ephesians 5.1, Ephesians 5.1. So let's look at a command right here, a big command, but it is a command. But keep the point on the board in mind. Commands ought to be considered as the expressed will of God. What's God's will for you? Ephesians 5.1 Therefore, be imitators of God. In other words, be like me, you know, he says, as beloved children. And what? Walk in love. That's a command. Walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So walk in love. Sound familiar? Why does he want you to do that? Because he knows the benefits of walking in love. Think about it. Day one, you walk out. Your spouse is a um, less than pleasant individual. Says toodaloo on the way out the door. So day one, you stew all day. How dare that he or she do that, say that to me. I got words for that person when they get home. You stew the whole day. Meanwhile, they're all, you know. Day number two, same thing happens. Change of perspective. He or she was weak. I get it. I still love them. I forgive them. You're free. No division. No quarreling. No family problems. You understand? So God commands you to walk in love. Why? For that very reason. Now think about topic. Families. If you don't walk in love, your family's going to implode. Eventually. Is that fair? Of course going to implode. If, if this ministry didn't exist, wasn't built on, doesn't run on, love, we would implode. We would have imploded a long time ago. Trust me. There have been far too many attacks, both inside and outside the church, that if we didn't function and walk in love, we would have closed up shop a long time ago. Trust me. But here we are. Walking in love, taking it on the chin, seeing it all as truth. The Lord Jesus Christ has given us two tremendous eternal gifts in order that after salvation we are equipped to do this thing, this command, walk in love. He didn't just say, I'm going to leave you alone like an orphan. He's not going to say, I, you know, Paul later on is going to write, walk in love to the Ephesians and canonize the thing as the inspired word of God. And he said, that's going to come about, but I'm never going to give you any means whatsoever. Ha, ha, ha. That's not Jesus. He fully equipped us. We have the word and the spirit. It's upon these two fundamentals, active gifts, that our entire spiritual life is animated. Hebrews 4.12, John 14.16-26. So it's not like Jesus Christ said, I'm going to take off now, guys. Good luck. He said, I'm going to leave you there. He, in his prayer, John 17, he said, God, I don't even want you to take them out. Leave them in the world. Just help them to resist the devil, the evil one. 
So he sent, he gave us the word and a helper, the spirit, to help us make sense. I mean, this is not a, this is not a user's manual. It's not stepwise functions. Okay, when you go home, there's points one, two, and three before you go to bed. This is, no. How do I know when to apply principles to my life? How do I know when what command applies? Well, I'll give you a helper, capital H. I'll give you the Spirit, and His ministry is going to minister to you, and He will bring into remembrance the things that are taught in the Word. So you see, He didn't leave us alone. He left us with things that are more powerful than anything else in the universe, the Word and the Spirit. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the vision of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Oh yeah, we're going to get down to business. So, know that. We're not going to fuss around and play patty cakes. I didn't give spiritual gifts like past the teacher so they could just, you know... Take the staff and, you know, run it over your back and count you. Oh, you're still here. It's good to see you, Johnny. No, I'll give him a rod, too. And when you're, when you're out of whack, it's like, whack. Oh, and that's motivated and empowered by my spirit, my helper. Because sometimes help, help comes with a heavy hand. Sometimes it's a soft, encouraging hand. But we're not going to fuss around. We're not going to play pretend. We're going to get down to business. And if you're willing to do that in humility, we're going to do crazy amounts of work. Crazy amounts of work. Think I can share Frank's little story, Bill? Bill's back there almost making me cry before class. He's, telling me, he's talking to me about Frank Westcott, who's losing half his toe. He has his toe chopped off. He goes, I don't even care. Because I've never been so free in my life. Didn't realize I was that religious for 40-something years. Now I'm free. Take the toll. Get it back later anyways. <laughs> right? Amen? I mean, these guys are like walking examples of the fact that the Word of God is living and active. And it's never too late to be healed. In Frank's situation, I hate to be outing him, but in Frank's situation, to be healed from religion. He got healed from religion, something that plagued him for most of his life and even affected his family to some degree. John 14, 26. So we have the word. That's going to cut right to the chase. And the helper is going to be right there. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. In other words, the word. I'm going to give you the word, and I'm going to give you a helper to remind you of the word. And neither one of those things is interested in playing patty cakes. We're going to get down to business. And if you really, if you just stop moaning and groaning and telling the world and calling up your friends and your parents and blowing up your own families and moaning and groaning about how tough life is and how difficult it is and how unfair things is. If you just shut up for a moment and take in the Word of God and listen to what the Spirit says, maybe you'd have a lot less to say on that front. No, nah, I'd rather just moan and groan and be pathetic. 
I'd rather drag down families. I'd rather blow up families. I'd rather cause division in the local assembly. I'd rather run away with my tail between my legs when the going gets tough. Well, that's your choice, isn't it? But I can teach you this beyond the shadow of a doubt, and this is where I've got to close. He has given us the Word and the Spirit, and you all have access to those things. It's upon these two fundamental active gifts that our entire spiritual life is animated. It's critically important that a person understands the spiritual life after salvation. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.